letters to the seven churches uh, in Asia Minor. And we've looked at several of these up to this point. This morning we're going to be looking at the church in Philadelphia. Uh, and seeing, as just a reminder, these words are to churches that were written, real historical churches, written in time and history, uh, with real problems, real issues going on. And Jesus is, re- is revealing himself to these churches and, and encouraging them in some cases, in some cases calling them to repentance. And what we've been doing as we look at that then is to think about our own church and think about how these letters apply to us individually and corporately as a body, as, as Union Baptist Church. And let's see what the Lord has to say to us this morning. Revelation chapter 3, beginning at verse number 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my work, my word, and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We've all probably heard uh, that common saying that when one door closes, another one opens. I think there's some validity to that in in that I've seen God work in my own life in, in many ways in that respect. Now, to be truthful, sometimes the Lord closes doors and there's there's not another one that's open. He's just simply saying that's not the way that I want you to go. But so often in my own life, in my own experience, I've seen that there's been something that I've wanted, that I've longed for, that I've been praying for and hoping for. And the Lord seems to close that door only to open another door. And when that other door is open, you see this is exactly the thing that I really needed No matter how much I thought I wanted this or thought I needed this or thought this would be a good idea, the Lord closed that door and he did so for wise purposes and and he's opened another door and it all makes sense now. When one door closes, uh, another door opens. I think that's kind of the main point of of this passage for, for this church. This is a church who is experiencing some suffering and they've been shut out of some places. They've had some doors closed on their face. But Jesus says, I'm the one who is the son of David, who has the key of David. And I'm opening a door for you that no one's going to be able to shut. Well, let's dig into this passage and see exactly what he's talking about here and, and, and apply it to our lives. Uh, as far as the problem that's going on, it, it seems that in this church that there were many people, uh, perhaps who were Jewish converts. 
Uh, in other words, they, uh, they, they were Jewish and they had heard the gospel preached from the Apostle Paul and from other apostles. And they believed that Jesus was the Messiah that the Old Testament had promised. And they had come to a place of faith in Jesus Christ. And they were now following Christ. And because of that, it seems that perhaps that their place in the local synagogue had been shut. The door had been shut to the synagogue for them. They had been shut out of that. Notice in verse 8 here, he says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power. And that word power can mean one of two things. It can mean strength or it can mean power in the sense of political power, uh, 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 authority, so to speak. And I think that's what he's saying here. You're a disenfranchised group. You've kind of been pushed out. You've been marginalized. And I know that about you. I see what's going on and I know what is going on in your life. What, what, what was the cause of this? Why would he say that they have but little power? Well, we see in verse 9 that he says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before you. A common problem in New Testament times was that when these, when these Jewish people came to believe and came to have faith in Jesus Christ and put their faith in him, that the larger Jewish community would ostracize them, that they would push them out of the synagogues and so on. We see this in Acts 17. In Acts 17, verse 1, it says, Now when they had passed through Amphiphilus and Apollonia, man, I'm batting a thousand with these names so far, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for, for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. He's the Messiah that you've been longing for. All the Old Testament prophecies in Isaiah and Jeremiah, that this Messiah that you've been waiting for, he has come and he's the Christ. And this is what Paul is preaching in the synagogue. And some of them were persuaded. Some of the Jews came to believe and they joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews, the Jewish leadership, were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out into the crowd. So this was the typical pattern. Paul, on his, apostle, on, on his missionary journeys, would go and the first place that he would go in the town was the local synagogue to his brothers. He himself was a Jew. He was, he was a, a teacher, and so he would stand up and teach and preach and say, Christ is the Messiah. Believe in him. Trust in him. And some of them would. But the larger majority and typically sort of the leadership structures, they, they would reject that message. And they would cast Paul and those who were believers, they would cast them out of the synagogue. We see this. You remember when Jesus healed the man who was blind? And uh, the, the Pharisees in that time were trying to figure out what's going on. And, and they're asking his parents, the blind man's parents, what happened? And, and it tells us in John that, 
that the parents said, we don't want to answer for him. We don't want to speak for him. And the reason that they didn't want to speak for him was because it says in John 9 that they were afraid of being cast out of the synagogue. They didn't want to be pushed out because they believed in Christ. So they said, you go talk to him and let him speak for himself about what he believes about Jesus. And that's in John chapter 9, verses 21 through 23. And then we even have a, a prophecy of Jesus in John chapter 16. He says this, verse 1, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away, talking to his disciples, because he says in John 16, they will put you out of the synagogues. Now, to us, that doesn't sound like a big deal, does it? It doesn't sound like that. Well, okay, so you can't go to the synagogue anymore. But just imagine in their day, in their time, this was a very traumatic Experience. First of all, uh, for, for Jews who had been exiled into these Roman cities, the local synagogue was the hub of their life. That was their social place that they went. When they celebrated holidays, that's where they went. Their family was all part of the synagogue. Everything that they did in the community, as, as they're thinking about their, where they're connected in their life, it was all centered. Religiously, socially, was all centered in in the synagogue. And now, because they believed in Jesus Christ, they've been pushed out of that. Uh, everything that they, that they think about who they are as being Jewish people in a, in, a, in a Roman city has been cut off from them. And they've been pushed out. I mean, that if we were to put ourselves in that place, uh, you could see the, the traumatic experience that that would be. Imagine your family is still going to the synagogue, your cousins and your uncles and aunts and maybe even your mom and dad are still all going week in and week out. And, and that's where their social life revolves. That's where you go when you want to speak Hebrew all day long. You've got to uh, you've got to speak Greek out in these cities. But but that's where you go and you speak your heart language. That's where that's where you go and you have good Jewish food and you celebrate holidays. This was the center of their life. And now because of their faith in Jesus Christ, it's been cut off from them we see then not, not only was it this this element of this social life uh, but also that probably the bigger part of this and the bigger tra tra trauma of this experience would be the fact that when they were put out of the synagogue a curse would be pronounced on them uh, that essentially would would say that they're no longer a, a part of god's people so you can imagine you've been raised in this religion. You've been practicing this since, since you were born, you know, from, from your earliest days. You've been going to the synagogue and you understand what it means to be part of God's people is to go to the synagogue and to worship and to re read the Old Testament and to study together. And now you've been cut off and they've pronounced this curse that says you're no longer part of God's people. You're outside of the people of God. This curse would be pronounced upon them. You know, I think as we apply this to our own lives, I think one of the things that we can do, of course, our context is a little bit different. Uh, but one of the things I think that would be important for us to see is that oftentimes when you're truly following Christ, it's it's the religious people, even sometimes the people who claim to be Christians that will persecute, that will uh, that will come against you, that will reject you. Oftentimes persecution doesn't come from the world outside out there, the unbelievers. It comes from those who are false believers, those, those who are claiming to speak and to act for God. That's what's going on here. The, these Jewish people that are in the leadership in the synagogue are saying, we're speaking for God. 
Uh, we, we are God's people, and now you've been placed outside of God's people. You have been cut off from God's people. Just think about Jesus. Who was it that crucified Jesus? It was the religious establishment of his day that rejected Christ and had him crucified. Peter tells us in Acts chapter 2 that you, uh, by means of the Roman Empire, have taken him. By the hands of wicked man, men have crucified him. But it was, it was the Jewish leadership that, that pushed that. Paul and, and his apostles in the early church uh, were, were persecuted by the religious establishment. And you know what? Down through history, if you have ever studied history and understand the persecution that has come upon the church throughout history, one of the interesting things to note is that it didn't come so much from the world as it did from the false church, the, the, the church that claimed to speak for God. And just go through throughout uh, church history and you see groups like the Waldensians who, who uh, were uh, faithful believers. Sometimes they're referred to as the first evangelical Christians. In the 12th century, they were located in Italy and, and in France. And uh, one article in Christianity Today said this about the Waldensian group. It says, this little group suffered years of massacre, rape, pillaging. During one famous massacre, more than 1,700 Waldensian lives were taken on Easter week in 1655. The story of the Waldensians is a story of devotion to the scriptures and of perseverance a story that should inspire us all. And as you study the history of that group, what you find out is that the ones bringing this persecution about were those who claimed to be the church in that day and that time. In that same period of time, we, we hear stories of men like William Tyndale. William Tyndale uh, was burned in August 1536, was burned at the stake. And what was his crime? What was it that William Tyndale had done? It was that he wanted to translate and publish the Bible in the language of the common people. You see, William Tyndale had been extremely gifted in terms of language. He knew Latin and Greek and Hebrew, and he could read the Bible for himself in the original language and study. And he came through his study of the Word of God to understand justification by faith alone. That is what we've just been seeing, that it's not our good works that earn salvation, but it's what Christ has done for us. And by simply believing and trusting in Christ, we're saved. That wasn't commonly taught. What was commonly taught was that you need to come into the church and be baptized and participate in all the rituals that we have and you'll earn and merit grace and then you'll get enough grace one day to go to heaven. William Tyndale studied the Bible in the original language and said, no, you're justified, you're saved by believing in Christ alone. And he, he understood that because he had this gifting, but he said, look, look at the masses of people who don't know the true gospel because they don't have the Bible in their own language. And he wanted to translate the Bible in the common language. And he was persecuted for this. When it came time, uh, near time for him to be uh, put to death as the, the king of England was uh, seeking William Tyndale, wanted him to come back to England so that he could stand trial and, and so on. And Tyndale said this, he says, I assure you if it would stand with the king's most gracious pleasure to grant only a bare text of the scripture to be put forth among his people, I shall immediately make faithful promise never to write more, but immediately 
come back to his realm and there must humbly submit myself at the feet of his royal majesty, offering my body to suffer what pain or torture, yea, what death his grace will. But until that time, until the king would allow the Bible to be translated into the common language, he says, until that time, I will abide the harshness of all ch chances, whatever shall come and endure my life in as many pains as it is able to bear and suffer. Once again, it was the religious establishment of his day, the Church of England that was persecuting uh, this faithful brother in Christ. As we fast forward and, and just even come to our own country, sometimes we celebrate and, and relish our freedom here in America, and, and rightly so. We, we've been blessed with religious liberty, but it was not always so here in America. In the early days, uh, there, there was persecution even here in America. Thomas Kidd, a professor at Baylor University, wrote an article entitled, When America Put Pastors in Prison. And he cited a letter from James Madison to a friend who said this, there, at, there are at this time not less than five or six well-meaning men in jail for publishing their religious sentiments. Pray for liberty of conscience to revive among us. Those men were men like Obadiah Holmes, who was imprisoned and, and even beaten uh, for preaching the gospel. Men like James Ireland, who they imprisoned, and he was so faithful and so zealous to preach the gospel uh, that even in prison, people would come to the grate over his cell and listen, and he would preach the gospel from his prison cell. Men like Isaac Bacchus, who, who refused to take a license uh, to preach the gospel, because in taking that license, if you take the license, uh, then, then they can uh, force on you what, what you can say and what you cannot say. And in each instance throughout history, the point I'm making here, each instance, it is the religious establishment that is bringing about uh, this persecution. And this is, I think, just a fulfillment of the words of Jesus in John 16. Once again, I quoted earlier, he says, the hour is coming when whoever kills you, whoever kills my disciples, will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. And see, here's the reality that you need to understand. Within Christianity, uh, there has always been the true church and, and a false church. There, there is a church that is a work of Satan that, that is doing the, the, the bidding of Satan. This, this church that is the false church is a church that's willing to go with the world. The true church is a church who will always stand with the word of God, who will not compromise in order to, to keep power, will not compromise in order to fit in with the world, but will always faithfully stand with Jesus Christ. But there's this other church. There's a church that is willing to compromise and to go with whatever the fat of the day is in order to, to maintain their position and their power in the world. And oftentimes what we see is that it is this, it is this church that is a, a, a false church, a, a forgery of Satan that is the one that will bring about persecution on the true church time and again throughout history we have seen this happen and that's what's happening in Philadelphia it is the people who are claiming to speak for God who are bringing persecution on God's very people what an amazing 
thing to think about. You know, the time is coming when this worldly church, when this false church will once again find itself at home with a government that is becoming increasingly hostile to the true church. All you have to do is look at places like China and you will see this division between the true church, the church that stands faithfully with the Lord and faithfully with the teaching of the Bible and the church that is willing to compromise in order to stay legitimate and stay in power. You go to China and you hear missionaries talk about China and they will talk about the state churches. There are churches that are licensed and approved by the state and they're very much visible. There are crosses there. There, there are some beautiful buildings there in China. But these are churches who, are, who have compromised Churches who are willing to go along with whatever the state says in order to retain this power, even if it means compromising the word of God. And then there's the true church in China. There's the church that is sometimes referred to as the underground church. And this church is the church that's facing persecution. This is the church that cannot own buildings, that cannot have church buildings, that cannot be visible in public. This is the church that has to hide and have services in basements and, and stay quiet about what they're doing. You see, there's a true church and there's a false church. There are those who claim to be God's people, but they are not. And for this faithful church, what, what I want us to see this morning in, in all of this is that even here in America, persecution is coming. I don't want to sound alarmist. I, I don't know uh, how this is going to come about or, or how rapidly this is going to unfold. But here's the reality. We're becoming a secular society. Uh, we, we are no longer the, the nation that we once were, st standing on the, uh, the truths of God wor God's word in so many ways. And there is persecution that is coming. Uh, again, we need to define persecution when I say that broadly. I'm not just talking about being imprisoned or beaten or, or, or even put to death. Uh, but, but we're talking about sort of being marginalized and pushed out of culture and society. We're already beginning to see that happen. And it's going to come all the more. And this is what the important thing that we need to understand and know. Is that it will come oftentimes from those people who are speaking or say that they are speaking for God. That it will come from those politicians who will say things like, well, you know, I'm a Christian too. I mean, I was raised in the South. I, I went to church my own. My, my grandfather or my uncle was a, a preacher. And so I, I'm a Christian too. But now I, I'm not crazy like them. I don't take the stands that they take. That, that's the kinds of things that are said. The, this persecution will come from those who claim to speak for God. And we know. Uh, when we look at prophecy, when we look at the words of Jesus about the end times, that that's the very thing that he says will happen. He says in Matthew 24, furthermore, Jesus, or rather, uh, for false Christ and, and false prophets will arise. False Christ, these are people claiming to be the Messiah, and false prophets, people who are claiming to speak for God, even though they're not speaking for God, will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. When Satan comes in the end times, he will come as an angel of light. He will come as someone speaking for the Lord. This is the difficulty in the persecution. And Paul talks about in, in 2 Thessalonians about the man of sin. One of the things that he says about the man of sin is that he will take his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. He will be speaking for God, supposedly. 
So we need to understand this. We need to have discernment to see this in our lives. That's what's going on in Philadelphia. And I think it's applicable to us today, especially as we move forward. What I want us to see this morning is three promises that are given to a church that is suffering in this way. Three promises. First of all, the promise of an open door. The promise of an open door. Uh, We see this, he says in in verse 7, the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. And then in verse 8, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. And here Jesus is referring this key of David comes from a prophecy in in Isaiah. And and essentially Jesus is saying, I'm the Messiah. And a key represents authority. It represents access. He's saying, I have the access and the ability to grant the access into this messianic kingdom, into the kingdom of the Messiah, into the kingdom of Christ. I have that key and I have the ability to open that kingdom. And he says, because you've been faithful to me, because church in Philadelphia, because if this is you here today, because you are faithfully holding to my name and continuing to persevere, even when you're suffering persecution, even when you've been ostracized, because you have been faithful, you've kept my word, you have not denied my name, I will open a door to you. I will open the door to my kingdom for you. And though the door of the synagogue might have been shut in your face, maybe you've been pushed out of society. You've been pushed out of this place that you so dearly love. And the door has been shut and locked for you in terms of that. I've opened a door that is far greater for you. A door into the kingdom of Christ. And that's what we need to understand this morning. If we are faithful to Christ, there are going to be some doors that are closed to us. There are going to be some things that are shut in our face. There are are going to be times when we are pushed out. But the reality is, is that for those who are faithful and who will endure that kind of scorn and that kind of rejection, the promise of Christ's kingdom is offered to you this morning. That door is open to you. And if you are faithful, no one will be able to shut that door in your face. The question as we think about this Is is your faith in the promise of Jesus' kingdom? Is your faith in Jesus' kingdom strong enough to cause you to keep his word, even if it means that you will forfeit some things in this life? And this is the critical issue for us, isn't it? Are the promises of Jesus true? Is what Jesus said true? If you believe that, and if you truly believe that, you will live that out, even if it means that you're rejected by this world, because you know there's a coming kingdom in the future that is so far greater, so much better than what this world can offer. But if your faith in the promises of Christ is weak or or is absent, then you're going to be clinging to this world. You'll be willing, you'll be one of those Christians who's willing to compromise the word of Jesus, who'll be willing to, in a sense, deny the name of Jesus in order to stay comfortable and to keep your position in this world because you don't believe in the reality of this coming kingdom. That's the question for us. If we're willing to compromise the word of Jesus in order to have the world, then we are demonstrating that we don't truly have faith in Jesus Christ. 
And that's the question for us at the heart of this matter. There are all kinds of people who claim to be Christians. But whenever the world decides that this is in vogue or this is the right thing, they're willing to just remold and reshape the word of Christ and reshape Christianity so that they can just continue along with the world unchanged. That's not true faith in Jesus Christ, right? That, that's not what it means to be a true Christian. A true Christian is someone who says, this is the word of Christ. This is what the word of God says. And I'm not changing if everyone in the world thinks I'm wrong. I'm going to go with the word of God above what this world says. And that's the question is for us. Do we believe in Christ in that kind of way? Do we believe his promise that this door has been opened into this kingdom? There's a second promise, not only an open door, but vindication, vindication. Look at verse number nine. He says, behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. They've shut you out. They've put you out of the synagogue. They've claimed to be speaking for God. And that's what the watching world sees, that you've been put out of the synagogue. You've been cut off from God's people. But he's saying, I'm, I'm going to give them to you. I, I'm going to make them come and bow down before you in, in, in a, uh, an act of submission. And they will see and they will know that I have loved you. The point is this. They claim to be God's people because of their lineage. They, they say, hey, we're the people of God because we're descendants of Abraham. But the New Testament teaches that not everyone who's a descendant of Abraham is truly one of Abraham's sons. The Bible teaches that those who have faith in Jesus Christ are those who truly are the sons of Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons. I am one of them and so are you. I'm not Jewish. The reason I'm a son of Abraham is because I've believed in Jesus Christ. And the Bible teaches that whoever has faith in Christ is a descendant of Abraham who also has faith. And so he's saying, hey, they've, they've got this claim because of their lineage. But you truly are my people. And one day all the world will see this. All the world will know that you are the people of God. You know, when you take a stand on the word of God, when you're faithful to the word of God, sometimes you're going to be rejected and it'll even be the religious people that will be rejecting you. And you, you'll seem to be foolish in the eyes of the world. You'll seem to be, as it is said sometimes, on the wrong side of history on certain issues. Man, these backwards, Bible-believing, fundamentalist Christians that just are so mixed up, they are just on the wrong side of history. Uh, they don't even know their Bible. Those are the kinds of things that are said, right? And Jesus is saying here, one day, those who claim to be God's people, who claim to be so enlightened, who, who claim to be speaking for the Lord, will see that you were right. They will see that I loved you. This is the second promise, this, this vindication. The question is, for us, and as we apply that, are you, are you living, are you living to be seen as right in the world's eyes? Or are you living for that day when truth will be revealed and will, when right will be seen for right? False Christianity is the Christianity that is always seeking the approval of the world over the word. What's important to you? You know, 
If the world suddenly loses its mind and says that there's no difference between men and women, there are certain groups claiming to speak for Christ, claiming to be Christians, who will just go along with that because that's the flavor of the day. That's what everybody believes now. And if we don't want to see, be seen as backwards and unloving and hateful, well, then we just go right along with the world because we, we just want to stay in step with the world. But if you're faithful to the word, you're not going to go there. Even if everyone thinks that you're wrong, even if everyone thinks that you're hateful, that you're a bigot, that you're unloving, and, and if false claims are made against you, you will be faithful to the word of God. So will you try to be seen by the world as being on the right side of history? Or will you remain faithful to the word of God and to the word of Christ and suffer scorn and mockery waiting for that day when truth will be revealed? Promise number three. Promise number three to help us endure this suffering is this deliverance from the hour of testing deliverance from the hour of testing look at verse number 10 because you have kept my word about patient endurance i will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth this seems to be a reference to that great tribulation period uh, that is spoken of in in the word of god jesus talks about this in matthew 24 uh, it says, for then there will be a great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. This hour of trial seems to be a reference to that, to that period of time. And Jesus said, I'm going to deliver you because you've remained faithful, because you have not denied my name and you've kept my word. I'm going to deliver you from that hour of trial. Now that and there's some debate there because that could mean I'm going to deliver you out of it after you go through it or I'm going to deliver you from it in the sense of I'm not going to allow you to go through that. And there are different views within Christianity about how that's going to work. Uh, but the reality here is either way, the, the same truth is, is there. The same promise is there. And that is this, that Jesus will, will see you through. Jesus will, will for those who who remain faithful, those who continue to cling to Christ, He will bring you through that hour of trial, no, no matter uh, what, what comes in, in this world. The substance of this promise for us is that Jesus will not allow tribulation and suffering to defeat His people. If you will continue to keep His Word, then He will keep you. He keeps us as we keep His Word. You know, I cited some, some history earlier about people who had suffered and experienced uh, uh, persecution in, in their own time. And uh, one of the things that is unique about so many of those stories as you read and you study history, and, and, and one of the things that you'll see repeated over and over again is that the, the people don't respond. Once they're in the middle of that trial, when they're in the middle of that suffering, they're in the middle of that persecution, so often they don't respond as you might expect them to respond. William Tyndale being burned at the stake for his faith in Jesus Christ and for his desire to get the word of God out to the, to the people. And he's being burned at the stake. And we would imagine the, the cries and the, uh, the screams that would come from, from that kind of uh, difficulty and that kind of experience. 
And yet it's recorded in in history that William Tyndall began to pray as they were lighting him on fire. And he prayed, Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. You see, I think that's a fulfillment to to this promise. I I will deliver you from that hour of trial. He will see us through that difficulty. If that's what comes, if, if we are to go through that, the Lord will be faithful to us if we continue to cling to him and to his word. Obadiah Holmes, who was imprisoned here in America in the early days before some of our liberties were hammered out. He was imprisoned and beaten with 40 lashes and the Lord enabled him. And it said that after the beating was over, he said he was to say to the crowd, he said, you have struck me with roses. The Lord helped him. The Lord enabled him to endure that suffering and to remain faithful. And the Lord will deliver us even if we go through suffering in this life. As we come to a close this morning, look at verse number 11. He says, I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. That's the call for us this morning. You see, the Christian life is presented as a race. That we are called to run. This idea of a crown is is not a royal crown, but it's a crown that the victors would receive, the the leaves that they would receive in the Olympic Games. And Jesus is saying here, continue to run that race. Continue to hold fast to me so that no man may seize your crown. That's the call for us this morning, to continue to cling to Christ. Come what may, uh, no matter if we're persecuted, no matter what is said about us as believers in Jesus Christ, no matter if we're rejected by the world, continue to hold fast to the Lord and to Christ so that no one may seize your crown. You see, there's a, a greater day coming. There's an open door to a greater kingdom. There's a time of vindication when the Holy One and the True One will unveil what is reality, what is true, and what is fiction. And those who have stood with Christ, those who have maintained loyalty to Christ through all of that will will receive this crown on that day. And I want to receive that crown. I I hope that's your desire to remain faithful to Christ this morning. Pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you.